we began looking at what is the true pursuit of a Christian, which is the pursuit of knowing Jesus. If you didn't have the chance to hear it, you can find that on our website. But we're going to continue that uh, this morning. And kind of what we're looking at throughout <coughs> excuse me, this series is the threshold that one crosses to become a Christian. Because it's what happens at that threshold that in essence determines everything that happens after you cross that threshold. There is a, a, something that happens when a person goes from not being a Christian or not being born again, not being in the kingdom of God, however you want to phrase that, to crossing over and becoming a Christian. There's something that happens, and what happens, it becomes a pattern for everything else that not only we live in the rest of this earthly life, but it even becomes the pattern of the rest of the kingdom. And so we want to take a good look at what happens at that crossing of the threshold. Why? For two reasons. Thank you, hon. One is that there could be some of us in this discussion discover, you know what? I'm not biblically, according to the scripture, an actual Christian. And that could come as a shock. I've grown up and I've gone to church all my life, but I'm not actually a Christian. Why? Because we realize that what happened at that threshold has never happened in my life. And you know what? That's cool. Because if that's the case, we want everybody to actually cross that threshold. But I also find, <coughs> myself included, excuse me for the gruff voice, that sometimes we can cross that threshold and we can meander from the rudiments, the, the foundational confession that we made in the crossing of that threshold to where our life begins to become about other things. So last week we looked at how we begin to pursue other things and what our real pursuit is, and it's knowing God. It's knowing Jesus. And today we're going to be looking more at the central theme and focus of, uh, of the Christian, which is Jesus. The central theme and focus of the Christian, which is Jesus. And that is simply because if we see into the kingdom of God we find that the central theme and focus of the kingdom of God is Jesus. And if we are a people who are kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven, then the more we become that, the more our theme becomes Jesus. Uh, if we were to squeeze you like a toothpaste tube, what would most people say comes out of you? What are you known for? I would say Peter the Apostle... They had people coming from a surrounding regions bringing their sick so that even if Peter's shadow would touch them as they lie in the streets, that the authority that he carried in the name of Jesus would touch them and, and heal them. I would say he was probably known for something. Would you agree? He had a reputation, and it was Jesus. I would say Paul the Apostle, if you were to squeeze this man, what comes out, what he was known for is Jesus. I would say the same should be the case for you and for me. Not as some, you know, make sure that you talk about Jesus all the time so that people can say that's your central theme and focus. Please don't do that. I'm talking about what happens deep on the inside from a deep encounter with Jesus where he has your all. Where you are living completely dependent on him and you are seeing him and knowing him. What flows from that place becomes a central theme and focus. So what can become the central theme and focus of Christians if we meander from that place? I'll, I'll just toss a couple things out at us. You know what one thing could become, and some of you may just follow me, 
It, we could get into things like church planting. And I say that because the group that we're a part of, the apostolic team that we partner with, NCMI, given to church planting. Before church planting became in vogue in the world of Christianity. You may or may not know this, but it's like the cool thing to do. Church plant. Uh, now, if you, if you, lots of flows in, of the, of the church, Christian ship, way before that was even the cool thing to do, NCMI was doing it. But you know what happened? Around the early 2000s, our current leader began to find out when he looked at himself, we are pursuing church planting more so than we're actually consumed with Jesus. And he would say he went through a process where he got born again again. So we can get into something as wonderful as church planting. Would you agree church planting is important? Discipling the nations by planting churches in every village, town, nation, and, and city? Absolutely. But it's not the central theme. We can make our central theme doctrine. Doctrine's good, isn't it? We can make our theme grace. We can make our central theme faith. We can make our central theme the love of God. How good is that? We can make our central theme Something like uh, end times or spiritual gifts. Jesus is, as Rodney said, and by the way, Rodney has a habit of declaring, I was like, has he looked at my notes? Did he cheat? When he got up and shared uh, after worship, he is the sum of all truth. Jesus, Jesus. Let Jesus this morning Come back to take his rightful place as the central theme and focus of your heart and mind and everything. Uh, we can make the central theme social justice. Sadly, many in the church on both political sides have made politics really the central theme, if you look into it. Which I think during 2020 became something that the venom and the, and the disgustedness of all that was right there on social media for everybody to see. We're not obsessed with Jesus. We're obsessed with conservatism or social justice and liber liberalism. What about Jesus? It's in the person of Jesus that all those things take the rightful place. Or it could even be for Border City Church this year, as we launch into our vision, it could become about multiplying community groups. And I want to say to us at the beginning of this year, let it remain. Whatever multiplication of community groups happens, let it be because we are obsessed with Jesus. And we want more than anything for them to know him like we do. So let's get into this thing. First of all, this crossing the threshold. What happens when we cross that threshold to go from not a Christian to becoming a Christian? What is that threshold? It is simply the saying yes to Jesus's invitation follow me. In the Gospels, there are 20 times that Jesus says, follow me. 17 of those times is an invitation or a command. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Crossing the threshold, let's simplify it for us, is simply the saying yes to that invitation. That is what it is to become a Christian. It is not to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I know it says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that God, is, God raised Jesus from the dead, uh, I better quote it correctly, uh, but it is believing in your heart Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. 
confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's his lordship, which is the essence of responding yes to follow me. It's basically a declaration, you are now my Lord. Do you follow what I'm saying here? Crossing the threshold is saying yes to his invitation. And I want to say something so wonderful about that. Saying yes to him is not about you being deserving to be with him, you being good enough. When he says, come follow me, that is God leaving perfection in the person of Jesus, leaving heaven, visiting us, submitting himself to live in our sinful, evil world, being subject to it, and coming after us, pursuing us while we're still sinners, and in that place saying, come follow me. Does your righteousness or your worthiness have anything to do with that invitation? It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him and who he is. That he is perfect love. He is merciful and comes after us. He pursues us first. We did not love him first. God first loved us. And so the invitation of come follow me is not are you good enough to be with him. You're not and you never will be. So just give that up. In, your, in our pride that I can't pursue God or I've got to hide from Jesus or I've got to get all this right before I can really face him. Face him as you are and just respond with a yes in your heart to say, Jesus, you are good enough to make me who is not good enough to be able to follow you wherever you're going. So it, as we say yes to this follow you, to follow him, let's make sure that we understand it's not about us being good enough, but we do need to understand something of who is this one that we're following? Who is it? And I want to dig into the scripture today and, and unmask something of who Jesus is that in the hopes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, his rightful place, his rightful identity be restored in us as his people. And that he, again, becomes our obsession. First of all, well, let me just say who he is, and then we'll look at it more deeply. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is humble. That's the easy stuff. Jesus was existent at the beginning. Jesus is God's message to us. Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is the only way to God. Thank you, Rodney. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. So let's go through these. Jesus is gentle, lowly. He's servant-hearted. If you look with me in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, here's this Jesus who is all these things that I just listed. Exalted, glorious, powerful, awesome, and yet, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, that same one says these words to us. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that wonderful <laughs> to know that this one who is so exalted and powerful and supreme is also inviting us for nothing of his own gain, but for our gain. Uh, you will find rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
I want to say to us this morning, this Jesus is gentle. Why is it so important? Because you need to know that as you cross that threshold, or perhaps you cross that threshold, as is the case for me in probably 1995 or something like that. Rodney, I don't know, and, and when, when did Noah build the ark? No, just kidding. <laughs> 1970 or something like that. You, you may have crossed that threshold a long time ago, or you may have never crossed that threshold and actually made that decision to follow Jesus. In either case, we need to get back to that place of recognizing what it is to be a Christian. It's to say yes to following him. And if we're following him, we need to understand that he's gentle. That he is approachable. That he says, come to me. He speaks to a sinful audience and says, come to me. I'm not looking for you to be good enough to come to me. I'm saying I'm so good in my love that I embrace the sinner and I am able to convert you and to transform your life to, for you to begin to become looking like me. But it's never going to happen as long as you're trying to get good enough to then begin following me. You become transformed by following me. Come to me. You're going to find rest. Not just that I'm going to change you. You're going to find rest. This yoke that I'm going to put on you, if you would be willing to exchange your burdens that you're carrying, that this world is putting on you, or maybe it's your ambition putting it upon yourself, I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I'm lowly and gentle of heart. It is important to know, my friends, Jesus is a demonstration of the love of God who loved us and died for us while we were still sinners. Jesus is approachable. But he's also exalted. Jesus, as we said, has existed from the beginning. I believe this morning as we look at these things, we're going to see that Jesus is not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is awe-inspiring. He's full of love, yes, but he's also great and amazing. And if it weren't for his love, we would be totally afraid and desperate and he's terrible and I can't even handle his glory. <laughs> so Jesus existed in the beginning. If you look with me in John chapter 1, powerful words. We're going to look at this, these first couple verses from John 1 a few times. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God <coughs> and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus, as sometimes portrayed or thought of as there's like God, the Father, the real God, the like serious God. We know that there's a trinity and everything, but like, let's be real. Jesus isn't really like God, God, like God's God, you know. And then he sends this person who comes as a human in the form of Jesus, and that's like Jesus, the Son of God. And then uh, he kind of takes care of this transaction and pay, pays the penalty for our sin. He goes back, and now we're back to God, like the real one. Like, let's be, no, Jesus is there. Jesus, the, the, the one that we know of in the flesh that lived here 2,000 years ago, lived for 33 and a half years, that one was there in the beginning, according to John chapter 1. We just celebrated Christmas not too long ago, and you may remember a certain verse from Isaiah chapter 9. We say it often around the Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? Who is the child? Who's the son? Jesus, and wonderful, and we think of the, the manger, and there's Jesus. And then it goes on, Isaiah, the prophet, begins to go on to talk about his identity. And he, his name, or his identity, he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, 
uh, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's rewind the back there a little. Did you say everlasting Father? Like, what are we talking about? Isn't God the Father the everlasting Father? Why is Jesus the everlasting Father? If you look at the original Hebrew words translated into everlasting Father, it would literally mean, it would blow your mind, if, if you actually think of it, it would mean the progenitor of eternity and time. That all of time is, comes from this key one original source whose name is Jesus. And now, in that light, you begin to understand why when Jesus was fully unveiled in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, he tells John, the apostle who has this revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Greek words for the, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It's not just Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus reigns and always has from the highest place. And so it's almost like we have tried to make Jesus, it's like God the Father, and then he sends Jesus, and it's almost like he's got to do this transaction, and it's almost like a comma in the sentence, and then we can get back to God, like the real God. And I want to say this morning, Jesus is not a comma in the sentence. Jesus is the sentence. Which brings us to the next point. If we go back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word. Jesus is the communication of God. The scripture says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Apply that passage of scripture to John 1, 1. Out of the abundance of God's heart... He spoke a word, and the abundance of his heart is all seen and revealed and consummated in Jesus Christ. If God wanted to communicate a message from the depths and recesses of his heart towards you and towards me, that message is seen most clearly in the face of Jesus. Now, I want you to consider everything that Jesus said, everything that he did, culminating with that God becoming man, dying on a cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's God's message. Jesus is the message. Faith, grace, election, church planting, social justice, those are all messages, but they only find their center in the person the living person who is alive, who still talks to his church and is alive forever. All the truth, lowercase t, finds its place and origin in the capital T, truth, Jesus. Hebrews, author of Hebrews says it this way. Listen to this. In the past, speaking of the Old Testament and Old Covenant, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's the Old Covenant. But what about the New Covenant? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. You want to know what the message is? 
Jesus undoubtedly is God's message. He spoke to us by his son. Jesus not only is the message, Jesus in his exalted state created all things. (laughs) So again, we think of Jesus as just the shepherd, the slain lamb of God, which he is who died on the cross substitutionally substitutionally for for us. Jesus is more than that. That's amazing what he did, but he's more than that. He's the creator of all things. You may have noticed when I was looking at Romans 1, I mean Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, we just read, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. That Jesus created all things, everything that you see in this room, the clothes that you're wearing, you yourself, Jesus created. John chapter 1 verse 1, going back there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the, with God in the beginning. Through him, verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is the, is the creator. And so what's the point? That John, the Apostle John, who wrote this Gospel of John, he's starting off his Gospel wanting to lay out at the very beginning, the first few verses of his Gospel, he's wanting to lay out and make very clear who this Jesus was, this person that he traveled with for three and a half years of his life and gave everything to. He's wanting to make it clear who Jesus was. John, who perhaps one could argue was the most intimate with, with Jesus, the, the, the closest of friends with Jesus, that John is writing here in the first couple of verses of his gospel of equating Jesus with God. <laughs> That's preeminent on, on, on John's heart to make clear Jesus is not just a human. Yes, he is fully human. He is fully God. Not God be, God. And on that note... God the Father (coughs) made God the Word or God the Son, however you want to say it, Lord and Christ. At the conclusion of the first time the gospel was ever preached after Jesus left this earth, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, you may know some of the story, the disciples are in the upper room and they're praying and a sound of a rushing mighty wind happens, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, they Uh, have cloven tongues of fire upon them. There's sounds, a crowd surrounds this upper room. They're wondering what in the world is that noise in there. They begin to accuse the disciples of being drunk because they're acting so completely besides themselves. And Peter stands up from amongst them and begins to herald to the crowd, this, we are not drunk, as you suppose. This is that which the prophet Joel had prophesied of, that in these last days I would pour out my spirit on all flesh. You remember the story, something like that? And he begins to declare, Peter the apostle, the gospel for the first time ever since Jesus ascends back into the heavens. This gospel message, I would say, was a pretty important preach. Would you agree? (laughs) And that message that caused 3,000 people to receive Jesus, say yes to following Jesus, and get baptized on that same day, that message culminated with this statement, Acts 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord 
and Christ. What is the idea there? If you want to be right with God, you want to be in tune with God, you want to, to be in that good space with God, this is how you do it. Say yes and agree to what God has said. God has said Jesus is Lord. The, and not, not just that Jesus is Lord out there, the way to respond is to say, Jesus, you are my Lord. And uh, you know what? Maybe kneeling is, is not the best way of, of representing it because I can't follow him on my knees. <laughs> Jesus, you're my Lord. Where are we going? That's it. That's the message. Jesus is not just Savior, my friends. In fact, he isn't your Savior until he's your Lord. If I fall in a ditch, and I am a tall dude, but may, let's say this ditch is really tall. I can't get out of it, which is what all of us were in, called sin, the ditch of sin. All of us banished to an eternal punishment because of sin, and we have no way out. If a Savior comes to the edge of that ditch and reaches their hand down to say, here, follow me, let me pull you up, and we look up and we see his hand and say, praise you. Thank you. Are we saved? You've got to put this hand into that hand and allow his strength to pull you out and to go where he's taking you. That's how you get saved. It's not just a confession. Jesus, you are standing there saving me. Thank you. It's practical and it's relational. And it's realizing who he is Lord, not just Savior. God made this Jesus whom we crucified Lord. He is the way to God, which is the very next thing that we want <coughs> to look at. Jesus is the only way to the Father. John chapter 14, verse 6 starts with this. Jesus said, that's important to say, Jesus said what I'm about to read to you. Not evangelical preacher man, Billy Graham didn't say, T.D. Jakes didn't say, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man, no one comes to the Father except through me. Minda and I were recently at a, uh, a get-together over Christmas. It was like a party. And there were people from all walks of life at this party. I mean, we had... We had a doctor, we had a well-known DJ, we had a contract, contractors, we had a well-known politician, we had, you know, pastors, we had, like, people who work in bars, the whole gamut. And we're talking to this one lady who sadly had had, obviously, very bad experience in church, and uh, which has shaped her idea around what Christianity is all about. And she said this comment to us. I actually love Jesus. I think he's awesome. I think he did great stuff. He was great. I just don't, I just don't accept this idea of him being the Messiah. And so I, what I'm about to say, I'm not intending on putting her down. If anything, what she said there is an indictment, not against her, against the church. For being so foul and abusive and messed up that we actually leave somebody who grew up in the church saying something like that. But having said that, let me just say something. You can't think Jesus is awesome and follow his teachings and 
you know, just think that he's wonderful and I want to follow him without reckoning with what he just said. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. This isn't about, and while the church has been arrogant, stubborn, prideful, better than the rest of the world in our presentation, and it's caused people of other faiths and other traditions to think they're just so opinionated. While that's true, indictment against the church, it is not serving humanity to water down our message, to become more acceptable to people who are of other faiths. If you're going to come to this food and faith meeting at our house this Wednesday, and you just wanted to pick whatever address there was to get to that food and faith, are you going to get to our food and faith? God has given us coordinates, and his name is Jesus. He and he alone is the way to God. And we need to present that humbly. It's not that we're so good that we know the truth. It's not about us knowing the truth. It's that Jesus is the truth. And by his grace, I've somehow come to know him. Let me not tell you about how good my religion is. Let me tell you about Jesus. God has sent them not just to Americans, not just to the West. God has sent him to the world. And all who know him have a responsibility to make sure that as many as is possible can encounter him. He is the way. The only way. In fact, the second presentation of the gospel, we just went through the first presentation of the gospel. Let me just read quickly the second presentation of the gospel. If you don't know the story, Peter and John on the way to a temple, they see a lame man, he's begging, and uh, Peter says these famous words, in uh, silver and gold I don't have, but in the what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. This lame beggar starts to leap up and praise, and he's praising outside the temple, and all these people who see him on a daily basis are looking at him in amazement, and, uh, and a crowd forms, and Peter starts to again preach the gospel. And that message ends with these words. Let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Skip over to the 12th verse. Listen to this. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I hope you can hear my heart. I'm not talking about anti-Muslim, anti-Hindu, anti-Buddhist, anti-whatever other faith or, or whatever it may be, but it, you cannot believe in Jesus and not believe the things that I just said. He is God's message. He is the provision God has given to all mankind. One provision. Not many paths. One to God. It is the person of Jesus. Follow me. Not follow me and me. And so, having said that, <coughs> remember how we said that Jesus is to be the central theme and focus of the Christian? Why? Because if you look into the heavenlies, he's the central theme and focus of heaven right now. Even though our physical eyes 
which see this material world are perhaps not seeing into the heavens. I assure you, heaven exists right now. There is activity happening right now. And the core activity is all orbiting and surrounding, revolving around a throne. And there is one sitting on that throne. And everything in heaven operates around worship and adoration of that Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, John the Apostle has this revelation. He's exiled to the island of Patmos. And he says on the Lord's day, he was caught up in the spirit. And he sees and has this encounter into the heavens. He sees. That's what he records in the book of Revelation. And in chapter 5, there's this thing about the scroll. And it's the opening of the scroll that's going to unfold God's end time purposes for the earth. To bring about all of what God has planned. And there's this sadness in heaven because there's no one worthy of opening up this scroll. And John himself says that in this, in this uh, revelation he began to weep greatly. Because there was no one in heaven or under the heaven or in the earth or under the earth that were worthy of opening the scroll. And then someone comes to John and says... Do not, do not weep. The, 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 the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has triumphed. And he is worthy. And he looks up, John looks up, and he sees one who is like a lamb looking as though it was slain. Who do you think that is? And this Jesus comes forward, and he's about to open up this scroll, and he's taking his place on the throne. And in Revelations 5.11, this is what John begins to record of what he sees in this story, he says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of, the, of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Jesus is what heaven is all about. He is the central theme of heaven. And the church is to be a people whose predominant prayer is this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's happening in heaven? Not just even his will, although absolutely. It is the worship and adoration and obsession and awe. And the, the unveiling, the, the, the overwhelming view of this exalted king that is what that mission if we're called to be on mission in this earth mission exists because worship does not that's it we are restoring what is in heaven into the earth we're not just planting churches we're calling people to see him to see what exists he is the central theme and focus and can I say, in your Christianity, in your following of Jesus, is that still the truth? Is that still the case? Or have we become about me and my thing? Or have we become about a doctrine or come about a social cause? Or so All those things are good. You're important. Social causes are important. But is it all tying back to the obsession and glorification and all-inspiring view of Jesus? 
if I can conclude with this, Jesus is God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word? Jesus is God. That same John, a couple chapters early in the book of Revelation, now mind you, <coughs> John, as I said earlier, was the most intimate with Jesus. He's the one that at the Last Supper was leaning his head upon the breast of Jesus. He's the one who, you know, there's the four gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. But John is called the poetic gospel because he's about the heart. He's about intimate connection. John depicts himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John makes sure to tell us that when they heard the word that Jesus had been risen from the dead, Peter and John run to the grave. And who does John make sure we know gets to the grave first? It was John. It was John amongst all the apostles when everybody else had abandoned Jesus while he hung on a cross and nobody came to his aid but one. It was John. And there at that Mount Calvary, it was Jesus handed over the care of his mother, Mary, to that one apostle, John. There was intimacy between John and Jesus. And that John, when he gets caught up into a revelation into heaven, this one who was probably, in John's mind, his best friend, when he sees Jesus as he is right now in his ascended glorified state in the heavenlies. I won't read it, but he describes it basically like this. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were bronze. His hair was white like wool. Out of his mouth, his mouth came the sound of many waters. And when I saw him, I fell down as dead. How many of you, when you see your best friend in their best day, fall down as though you're dead? Jesus, in his transcendent, exalted, and ascended, glorious state, is so profoundly glorious and powerful and amazing that we, in our human ability, can't even handle who he is. And Jesus comes and he puts his hand on John in that moment and he says, fear not, it is I. Even in that state, Jesus is still the same one who says, come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Yes, I am glorious and powerful. In fact, the scripture says demons not only believe in Jesus, demons tremble at the name of Jesus. All of the heavenly and the spirit realm tremble at Jesus. And yet that lofty, exalted, terrible one, and I mean that in the most pure meaning of the English word terrible, awful, awe-inspiring, full of awe. That one is the same one who died on a cross for me when I was still a sinner and didn't even repent. And if we're going to have the obsession of Jesus and be him be restored to his church as the central theme and focus, we've got to see both, all aspects of Jesus. The one who died on a cross ridiculously for me and the creator of all things. God himself, the one who is in the beginning, the one who is made Lord in Christ. Are you following? Can we just respond real quick?